talking to David, our senior Miami correspondent. Uh, you any Cuban food, David? Uh, no, I've been eating a lot of uh, like crab shack food. I have a lot, I've had a lot of fried fish. A lot of fried fish and very little exercise and just like baking in the sun, feeling like the water steam out of my body as I turn into like at least 50% frying oil and fish fat. Sounds like you're living it up, man. Uh, yeah, yeah. Clogged arteries or happy arteries. <laughs> I, um, yeah. I just love Latin food in general, like street food, and uh, I love Cuban food, Cuban sandwiches. I have not gotten a Cuban sandwich. I, I, I have a spot here that I go to for Cuban sandwiches, and I haven't been there uh, yet on this visit, so... Uh, you know what's uh, supposed to be good is a uh, media luna sandwich. Um, it's like a Cuban sandwich, but the bread is like more buttery, and um, it's it's kind of supposed to be kind of like a Cuban sandwich, but like on steroids. That's uh, much like our president. Right. Yeah, right. Oh man, he was looking he was looking way too good. Yeah, it's. Uh, I don't know if, if if you were describing like a dystopian future, you would probably describe it as uh, like Trump on steroids. And now we've actually got right it. now we have that. <laughs> yeah, there's like Trump on wanna, steroids. Man. Wait, do do you want to um, um, do you want to like um, introduce us or whatever or what? Yeah, I was. <laughs> um, let me just organize my notes. Welcome to Pod Me Us, documenting the crisis of American politics from a leftist perspective as we transition towards a primarily podcast-based economy. Uh, I'm John Miles, canvasser from Bernie 2020, here with David Mizuki, freelance journalist, activist, noted Italian. I am a noted Italian. That is very accurate. <laughs> Get that perspective on this show. Yeah, I can tell you what each of the candidates thinks about garlic bread. Fantastic. That's these are the issues that don't get talked about enough. Frankly, no, no, they do um, not. You got you know journalists using slurs like Fredo and really just the most like repugnant, the worst of all slurs, really. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've been, uh, you know, I've been sending letters to the NAACP about, you know, what about the Italians? But, uh, you know, they're, they're shockingly unreceptive. I can't imagine why. So, lots going on in the past week, obviously, the past uh, couple weeks. We'll start with the uh, debate, the uh, Kamala Pence debate. Yeah. It was like it was mad boring, this debate. Neither of them told the other to shut up. Like, they're not insulting each other's children. I don't know. Pretty boring all around. What was your take, David? It was very boring to watch in the moment. You know, I, I was just very bored throughout. I went into it with higher expectations than I did for the Trump 
Biden one for the Trump Biden one. I was really desperately hoping for a uh, Biden surge in personality and aggression that did not manifest. Mm. I guess I was similarly disappointed this time. Yeah, I felt like it was basically a tie in terms of style points. Uh, it was just, it was a very interesting, it was really just a, a mismatch of personality because Pence, you know, while being just like a, a horrible person ideologically and, and just like a, really a monster in, um, in terms of what he did as governor of Indiana, he is this kind of mild-mannered evangelical but. Yeah, talking about style, I heard that Kamala was coached by Pete Buttigieg, mm. and I saw his fingerprints all over her greatest flaws in that debate. She was taking time, these pauses that I think were meant to be dramatic and underlined, maybe like the death toll of the virus or any particular kind of issue that was meant to uh, inspire a, a feeling of moral condemnation in the audience, but those pauses, all they did was eat up time. This isn't the set of the West Wing. There's no soaring music behind you when you take your time talking. All you're doing is wasting your time in a fucking debate where you have limited time. I swear to you, that little anecdote about Abe Lincoln and what he did with the Supreme Court, yeah. that has Buttigieg's fingerprints all over it, man. I don't know if it was like official from her campaign or if it was kind of just leaked or whatever, that he was the one who was doing the, the debate prep, but like that has him written all over it. And why go for him? Did he ever trounce anyone in any of the Democratic primary debates? No. I mean, not, not that I recall. He was like a middling figure. He never, I don't think he ever suffered an ownage uh, quite like uh, Biden did at one point, or uh, I don't know, maybe some other candidates, but he never came out like the winner of a debate. And his whole shtick is aping Obama and speaking in platitudes. I, I think she is just generally a very, and maybe the Buttigieg coaching, uh, you know, even uh, brought it to the fore even more, but she is just a, she's a very stage managed politician. And, and like I say, it was just like a, it was a fascinating mismatch. I think Kamala is very, like, very stage managed and coach. And, you know, Pence is just a true believer, evangelical. He genuinely believes every insane thing that comes out of his mouth. Yeah, I mean, uh, Democrats are running, are trying to run, it seems, at least going by Kamala Harris's performance in that debate, another, you know, don't rock the boat kind of campaign. This middling path that, routinely fails them it, it's it, and that's why it's it's because of this failing path that they need absolute political geniuses to pull it off the only guys mm. the only democrats who can ever win the presidency are absolute political rhetorical geniuses like clinton and obama because yeah. it's such a bad brand to begin with that you have to be incredibly gifted to pull it off yeah, all of the ideological fervor uh, these days is on the right. It's with the Republicans. You know, they are true believers of the free market ideology, neoliberal ideology, and, and Democrats have become an imitation of that. And I don't know about a right-wing fervor. I would say that there is a fervor, and they've corralled it to their advantage. You know, they've harnessed it for themselves, and we've just let them without an equivalent response that could bring out people who don't usually vote, which is a hundred million people. Yeah, literally half of all people who are eligible to vote. Uh, Trump is interesting in that he just, 
he really gets to the, I mean, if there's one thing he knows, it's PR. But, um, and, you know, this was written about in Art of the Deal, that you just appeal to people's, like, wildest fantasy, like, whatever they secretly want. And Trump is just, like, the racist id of the Republican Party. He just uh, stands for all of this uh, bigotry and all this bitterness of losing every cultural battle over the last several decades. And the Democrats just don't have any, I mean, you know, other than the Bernie wing, uh, the Democrats just don't have any appealing ideology or anything to really rally the base other than just opposition to Trump. No, exactly. They're running a 2016 campaign again, and this time they're hoping that after four years of a disastrous Trump presidency, that the balance on that equation of pointing to him and being like, just look at how horrible he is, that that holds better now that he is president and has done so poorly, which I, I can I can kind of understand that. But since it already didn't work and, you know, there's a lot of data to suggest that there's a number of positions and policies that if if genuinely embraced and promoted would give them support, uh, a great deal of support. Why, why aren't they doing that? You know, mm-hmm. well, it's, it's, um, and I, I think it's like Kashama Sawan said a while ago. Um, so she's a, she's a socialist city council woman in, in Seattle. Yeah. You know, uh, Democrats would rather lose to a Republican than lose their seat to a progressive because you lose to a Republican, you get to be part of the party that's in opposition to them. But if you lose to a progressive, you are out. You're out of the conversation. Your version of what opposing Republicans is has failed. And a new version of opposing Republicans that has better chances of winning and promotes better policies and gets more done is is uh, it ha- has definitively sidelined you. The only thing that's a real uh, danger to the Democratic Party establishment is the left. People like Schumer, like Pelosi, they're never going to lose their seats unless they are challenged from the left. And Schumer might be. Um, mm-hmm. And honestly, it's the, the single best thing Democrats are, are good at these days is actually attacking the left, right? Like they've undermined Bernie and two primaries now. They undermined Bernie in 2016 only to immediately lose to Trump, you know, and that is ultimately the purpose of the Democratic Party is to hamstring the left. I'll just say I I was I was surprised that like that the first debate had, you know, such an effect on me because at this point, I, you know, I'm so cynical about American politics anyway. And it's but it just really was it's I just came away from that debate thinking it's like is this really at least really the two best people our system can vomit up like is this uh, <laughs> can you this, imagine two more of those like there are three debates scheduled it's yeah well it's it's looking now like it might not happen which might be for the yeah tr- trump's sick and he can't and it's just as well who wants two more of those things you think is biden gonna get any better Of course not. Yeah, well, it's like, so the latest is they're saying that these are going to be virtual debates and and Trump is saying it's, no, he's going to have a teleprompter in front of him down in his basement bunker. It's not, really, it's just, you know, Trump's whole strategy depends on being able to control the debate and get under Biden's skin and talk over him. 
And it's harder to do that when you're not there in person. I, I think Trump does want another debate. He needs another debate because it, the first one was such a disaster for him. And he just really, he just was such a, um, just such an asshole. It was, I, I don't think Trump took a hit from that debate. I think the media gave him a drubbing, you know, he didn't lose, he didn't lose any supporters from that debate. Well, no, he didn't lose any supporters. I mean, you know, his base is going to be with them no matter what, but I feel like undecided voters, people in the middle, their politics is all aesthetic. It's all superficial. And Trump was just an ass. I mean, everyone knows he's an asshole, but he was just, he really took it to another level during that debate. And I feel like he, he needs another couple of debates because he has to change the narrative. Like at this point, Biden is fairly comfortably winning in the polls. Uh, you know, unless Trump really is just able to pull off this judicial coup and, and have just a mass number of mail-in ballots invalidated, uh, Trump needs to do something to change the narrative. And these debates are just about the only thing he has left at this point. Um, so, I mean, we'll see if they happen. I mean, my impression is that Trump needs these debates and he's going to try to make make them happen somehow. Um, you know, he's trying to get a better deal for himself. He doesn't want a virtual debate. And I think Joe Biden doesn't want the debates uh, because he's comfortable, right? He's comfortably winning right now. I, uh, I hope you're right on all that. I mean, the Democrats are lawyering up, apparently. They're they are, are getting ready for a drawn out legal battle. Um, I mean, it's, it's the courts are just so stacked with Trump's appointees at every level. It's um, like it's 2000 was bad enough. But if we have another election like that, another contested election, given how divided things are in this country now, it's uh, like I was just seeing something. There, there was some polling that was saying like the majority of Americans believe that there will be some post-election violence. Um, a significant portion of Americans think that we're headed towards a civil war. Um, it's, um, well, that's kind of, uh, speaking of violence and civil wars, let's get into this just insane story about, uh, this, about Michigan governor, uh, Gretchen Whitmer, about these, uh, white supremacists who had this plan to kidnap the governor of Michigan for, uh, being a liberal, I guess they wanted to own the libs. And this was just the more you read about this, just the more insane it really is. They, so they wanted to kidnap the governor and they saw this as a prelude to an actual civil war. Like they were going to kidnap the governor. They were going to threaten law enforcement. And um, yeah, they, were, they were going to they were going to extradite her to Wisconsin where she would stand trial because that's how this shit works. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the whole thing, it would be. It would be a little, I'm laughing at it, and it is funny to a certain extent. It would be a lot funnier if they hadn't planned as much as they did and done as much as they did. Uh, I, I was, you know, when I found out the details about, you know, first of all, how many of these guys there were, like, what's like 13 guys? That's a lot of, that's a lot of nutcases to, to, to band together uh, and, and who, you know, who have the time to, to do mm. this kind of shit. They were, they were all hanging out at, at one of these assholes' compounds uh, in in compounds, his property, you know, in the middle well, of there's always a compound with these people. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it's a it's a nice house until thirteen guys go in it with weapons and start planning stuff. Then it's a compound. 
basically like yeah, a terrorist was, training camp. You know, you've got the video of them on the monkey bars or whatever. Yeah, and so they, and you know, they like had had uh, tested uh, an IED on the property. Um, yeah, I, I, I hope that this isn't a case of, you know, 10,000 of these things happening and one of them rises to the level of our awareness. I, I would like to think that it was a particularly egregious case that that made it visible uh, and that everything else that's potentially going on in those circles is less aggressive. I think there is... Um... I think there's definitely more of that out there. And it's uh, like I said, I'm hoping (laughs) it is, you know, and I think it's so easy for it to be underground these days because they can be on signal. They can be on telegram. It's it's easy to keep this stuff underground. Have you seen the mug shots of these guys of the 13 guys? I haven't. I'm imagining this total like hot dog neck guys. It's a, I, I, you know, it is a, 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 it is really a mosaic. It is all the different kinds of shade of uh, shit kicker Nazi you could think of. One of them actually, one of them actually has uh, the super uh, elongated earlobes with a hole in them, kind of thing. You know, oh, like you have one of those earrings with a hole in it. Yeah, like a hipster Nazi here. Yeah, yeah, like I not not the guy I would have expected, you know, not not, not the look I would have expected, and just uh, yeah, a whole bunch of, uh, I mean, their stares kind of concerningly vacant, uh, you know, mm. these guys. I don't know, you know, sometimes you see a mugshot and you see someone who's really tired, or you see a sense of regret, or you see something and. I'm just you looking know, up these mugshots. Like yeah, their eyes are made. Of, it's like their eyes are made of glass. You know, it's it's a they, they are they have really terrifying faces. I yeah, I'm just looking up these mugshots. Uh, yeah, I don't see any contrition out of these people. Um, they look uh, defined. They look like they they look like they're true believers. Uh, so and you know, I think there's I can say I think there's more people like that out there. Uh, you know, I think there's there's a lot to analyze here. I, I think um, you know there, there's a lot of media capture, right? I mean, what, what where are these guys going for for news, uh, yeah. right? I, I think that these are all stormfront readers who found each other. Yeah, these are crazy times in which we live. Like I say, I mean, if if you're Putin, you've got to be thrilled. Things are really just going off the rails. It feels like lately, and um, and. It, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, there, there is the question of what this means for us on the world stage and everything. But it's, I think we're seeing a lot of loss of prestige and uh, soft power for the United States, basically. I mean, there was, you know, you, there's actually polling showing that Trump is less trusted on the world stage than, uh, than Xi Jinping right now, than in literally any other major leader on the world stage. So, I mean, this definitely redounds to China's benefit. Yeah, we're down to Russia's benefit as well. Yeah, I mean, that's probably the one area that this came up in the debate uh, towards the end as well. I think he's going to, I mean, obviously he can't help but restore the uh, international prestige of the country to, to some extent, um, you know, after, after Trump. But, um, I mean, whether that will entirely be a good thing, I mean, it's... Um, 
you know, I think he would be more successful in rallying international support for, uh, you know, whatever military action uh, he decides that we need to take part in. He would. Yeah, I mean, in in my rosy vision, he is, you know, using this diplomatic, uh, you know, political capital and everything to, you know, save the planet and stuff. But, you know, who am I kidding? Yeah, I mean, we're going to have to see some action on climate change, and then maybe we will see some more uh, international action on that. But it's, um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot that America is doing, obviously, which is not good, uh, you know, in terms of whatever kind of wars we could be getting to, in terms of like these, uh, you know, these sanctions, which, uh, you know, as the country, I mean, since Obama, it's, uh, you know, I think we've seen hybrid warfare. We saw the coup in Bolivia, and then we, but we've also just seen sanctions used as a tool against, you know, Venezuela, sanctions being employed against Cuba, against Iran. You know, as, as some of the prestige of the country is restored under Biden, it's, uh, you know, it's going to be easier for them to enforce sanctions. You know, on the other hand, Trump's not great in this front either. I mean, it's, I do think you see some of the neocons trying to infiltrate the Democratic Party now, but. You still got a fair amount of them. They're sticking with Trump. You've got, frankly, the most sadistic ones. You know, your people like Elliot Abrams, um, you know, who is in large part, I think, responsible for this uh, strategy of, of just harshest sanctions possible uh, in Venezuela. So um, I do think Biden would be marginally better in this respect because he's just not, he's just, He's just a less sadistic person. I think the people surrounding him are just like less sadistic and they're not going to make it their goal to literally starve uh, Venezuelans. But um, on the other hand, like I say, there will be more kind of, the country will have more international prestige under Biden and that could could have some negative effects. You wanted to um, talk about uh, Julian Assange. His deportation trial is underway in the United Kingdom right now. It's yeah, easy like, to lose track of something like this just with everything going on now. I, I just do want it out there that this is happening and that people should follow it. There hasn't been any particular new developments in the last couple of days, but I would urge people just to like, you know, check out The Intercept. They have been following it pretty well and they had an article from a couple of days ago sort of you know, going through what's happening to him. And, uh, you know, the U.S. wants to extradite him to our country to put him on trial and send him to jail for 150 years for exposing unflattering things about our military and what it does. And I would urge you not just to look at details about his trial, but also just to look at what WikiLeaks has revealed because they do these huge document dumps And the Times and The Guardian and others cover them sometimes, but it kind of just comes and goes, you know? And first of all, yeah, also speaking of The Times and The Guardian, they are nowhere on this, okay, right? He Mm -hmm. leaks all this information. They take it and they publish it to, you know, temporary but quite uh, vociferous praise at the moment, right? And now that he is being taken to trial, they have no love for him. They're hardly covering it. And, you know, they're happy to see him rot for 150 years in jail. Yeah. And uh, so that should give you a sense that there is really an establishment. We're talking about establishment media. Uh, mm-hmm. And um, beyond just looking the at... The Guardian his- really has just gotten... Were, I mean, they've always been lips, but, uh, you know, they were horrible on Corbin. And it's... Uh, I mean, 
Yeah, something like the Assange trial is a perfect example of something they uh, they are loath to talk about um, because it yeah, they're, they're, yeah, their media has the same kind of you know lefty when it's convenient kind of take on things, yeah. you know, yeah. and then when it when it really challenges power to be a lefty, they're they're nowhere to be seen. So beyond that, I would urge people to look at the WikiLeaks exposures of the Iraq war logs. Those are pretty big to see how we do what we do in uh, the Middle East and what horrible things uh, our soldiers and uh, military contractors engage in routinely and as a matter of policy, not in contravention of it. Exactly, Uh, also the vault seven leaks which Mm -hmm. is about surveillance and how deep the ability to surveil goes within our intelligence agencies how any kind of smart device basically uh can be uh infective you know their, their term infected programmed with malware to you know not really turn off when you turn it off and just record you uh, to be recording you all the time uh, when they're on, to uh, control uh, remotely cars, other devices. Uh, it's I mean, it's scary stuff. stuff. I mean, and people oh. speculate that that's, that that's what happened to Michael Hastings. I w- um, yes, I didn't know if you were aware of this or not, John. I'm yeah. glad to hear that you are. Yeah, Michael Hastings was killed, uh, was killed, died in a car wreck. And uh, Richard Clark, uh, you mm-hmm. know, a a you know prominent figure in the you know intelligence community right said that michael hastings death was consistent with that kind of action being taken against him because it didn't really make any sense he was driving through the hills and outside of los angeles and instead of taking a turn just revved and went right off a cliff basically um, yeah at maximum possible speed there were witnesses yeah. who just yeah who who just who saw this and commented in, uh, on how just uh how odd the whole thing seemed. Yeah, and not only, so there's all that stuff which you may or may not be aware of already. And beyond that, I think it's also really important to to, to highlight that the Vault 7 leaks also include documents that show that the CIA engages in false flag hackings and malware, that Mm -hmm. they themselves hack institutions of all kinds governmental or otherwise and try to make it look like a foreign power did it right to engender a certain kind of foreign policy and, right they can they uh, can do these totally they can, they can, they can is, do these hacks and uh make it look like it was russia that did it or made it look yeah like it and this is yeah or anyone else or anyone else uh-huh. yeah i mean whenever they've been accused of doing things domestically which is fairly frequent uh you know it happened, has happened many times in their history uh cia directors clutch their pearls and go oh no we would never do that uh, probably the most benign but a very public example that i can think of is uh, when Diane Feinstein's office was investigating the CIA and CIA was spying on science, <laughs> Feinstein's office investigating right. And John Brennan, when inter- who was uh, director of the CIA at the time, just lied straight up to people. And he uh, acted incredulous. You know, he said, oh, we, we would never do that. And then it came out a few months later, that's exactly what they were doing. These people are... You know, the job is to be duplicitous 
in our service. And they're just being duplicitous for ends that, you know, I'm not sure a lot of the American people would agree with. The CIA uh, is a cancer and frankly has been since the beginning. And it's, yeah, famous, I mean, there was a, uh, uh, it's, um, yeah, Harry Truman regretted its creation, said that it would be reined in. Uh, uh, JFK supposedly was going to rein it in. It's just, it's this totally out of control institution. And it's, yeah, um, and it's something that presidents have constantly had trouble dealing with. Eisenhower, when he left, said that Alan Dulles and the CIA had left him, quote, a legacy of ashes. Mm. They had ruined his reputation on foreign policy. Uh, through the actions that they took and, you know, the, the bullshit they were feeding him to, to, to keep him warmongering and worried about, uh, you know, and, and worried about the Ruskies. Uh, yeah. And, um, uh, yeah. Most recently, you have this coup in Bolivia, which is just, I mean, you want to talk about evil professing our belief in democracy and the sacredness of democracy while thoroughly undermining Bolivia's democracy uh, with these, these false accusations of, of fraud with an assist from the OAS. Um, you know, this stuff, it didn't stop after the Cold War. It's ongoing. And it's uh, a real debt of gratitude to, I mean, whatever, uh, you know, whatever Assange uh, might have done in his personal life, which could be uh, rightfully criticized. It's we owe him a debt of gratitude. People like Chelsea Manning. Those charges are for sexual assault in Sweden. So let him go to Sweden and, yeah. and stand trial for that. Okay. Like yeah. that, that's, that's a world away from 150 years for revealing war crimes that are absolutely in the public interest to know. Let him go to Sweden instead of, you know, wasting away in some American supermax dungeon. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, it makes for some pretty uh, chilling reading, the Vault 7 leaks. And frankly, is this, I mean, there's so much we have learned from WikiLeaks about what our government does in the world, about uh, uh, about a, uh, a prior coup attempt against Evo Morales called the Media Luna coup, this basically effort to have the eastern portion of the country secede. And, you know, it might have done so if not for Chavez, and the kind of uh, collaboration of the pink tide governments at the time to prevent this challenge to Evo's power. We know that uh, we were spying on the state oil company in Brazil and Brazilian politicians and very likely setting the stage for this judicial coup against uh, Dilma Rousseff and then this judicial coup against, uh, against Lula. Yeah, yeah, they basically got, I mean, what happened prior to Lula with Michel Temer and Dilma Rousseff uh, that that was uh, that that was essentially uh, a coup on its own. I mean, it's just that in Brazil, it's kind of like when uh, what happened to Dilma and and Lula is kind of like what happens when a cop pulls you over and they don't have shit on you, so they give you a ticket for like following too close or something like that. Uh, you know, it's like, or, or, you know, you were going 75 and a 55 when everyone's going 75 on that highway, right? Yeah. Uh, it's, it, it's basically, it, it's that kind of equivalent, what happened to both Dilma and to Lula. Because, you know, the way like politics in, in Brazil, 
from the local to the highest levels uh, runs on a lot of bakshish and uh, a lot, lot of greased wheels, uh, yeah. shall we say. And, and so, you know, you can, you know, you can uh, try to reform that entire system or you can try to use it to solve the problem of hunger in the country or electrify people's homes as uh, Dilma and Lula did. And so then Michel Temer and Jair Bolsonaro and Moro mm-hmm. come in and, uh, you know, throw these accusations around. And is there absolutely nothing to them? No. Uh, but is it absolutely cynical and flies in the face of the reality of what was going on and what they were doing? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, this, uh, these, these charges uh, that, Dilma you know, was, that Dilma was impeached on this influence, so-called influence. Yeah, Dilma was impeached like on corruption. Yeah, Dilma was impeached on corruption. But I mean, according to, I mean, uh, you know, and I have friends in Brazil, they say it's, you know, as you say, this is, um, you know, these were not impeachable offenses. I mean, in the case of Lula, there was no actual proof that he ever set foot on this property that was supposedly given to him as a bride. No, yeah. It was I mean, all plea bargain testimony. Like, even if it had been related to, 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 to like certain kinds of corruption, uh, it, it's just how the politics runs there, you know? And let's not, and also like, let's not pretend that ours runs any differently other than that it's like a bit more formalized, <laughs> you know? Right, yeah. Our, our system is massively, I mean, you had senators who were, you know, who were selling stock right before the coronavirus shut down. They knew this was going to be a shit show and were, you know, well positioned to uh, cover their asses. I mean, how is Kelly Loeffler not in jail yet, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, there is just so much corruption uh, under the, I mean, not even that far under the surface in our system. It, it would be interesting to, uh, to, to see just what exactly foreign intelligence services and, um, you know, and, and others could find. But yeah, I think it's just, we owe a debt of gratitude to Assange because more and more, I think since Obama, um, because Obama did run on this very much um, anti-war platform and it's getting harder and harder for uh, the United States to openly militarily intervene in places. Uh, of course, other countries still do it. Russia has done it in Syria, but um, more and more we're seeing this hybrid warfare. Uh, we're seeing this lawfare and judicial persecution of, of pink tide figures across Latin America. Um, we are seeing just, yeah, it's really, you know, CIA style, cloak and dagger operations. We especially saw that with Bolivia. So, um, and that's, that's why Obama persecuted more whistleblowers than any other president in history, because he knows that this is the way things are done from now on. Um, you know, like when we, uh, when we undermine Iran's nuclear program with this virus. Uh, so, I mean, more and more it's, um, you know, this is the way things are going. And that's and so we need people like Assange, we need people like Chelsea Manning and Edward Snowden to um, uh, to reveal these things. So, so uh, yeah, um, and pessimistic, obviously about. I mean, apparently his defense is doing a pretty good job in the UK right now. I'm obviously pessimistic about its ability to succeed in any case, but. Um, yeah, exactly. I feel like he could he could do a perfect case, and the judge is like, "Okay, that's nice." <laughs> See it's you a matter of <laughs> it's a matter of foreign policy. It's been decided. It's all been decided beforehand, um, and it's a matter of their subservience to the United States. Um, 
But, yeah, um, there would be there there would be a price exacted against the UK if they if, if this judge did not find uh, in a way favorable to the US. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, anything else you wanted to uh, talk about on on that point on Assange? Or... Um, no, just you know, I would just urge listeners, you know, check out the Iraq War Logs and Vault Seven because I think he made a big splash when he first came on the scene. You know, with the um, with uh with, with the the collateral murder video you know I, I think when he first came on the scene there were you know there was a lot of interest because it was kind of a novel uh concept even what he was doing you know yeah. just giving people raw unfiltered uh data and uh media that um, you know relating to our military and uh and I, I think as it went on, people would see, in my, you know, at least I'm speaking from personal experience here, I think a lot of people maybe did this where they're like, oh, yeah, there's another Julian Assange thing. Okay, yeah, everything's fucked up. I get it. But it's like, you don't quite get it, you know? They're, they're, yeah. you, you'd be surprised what these people actually write down and <laughs> put in official reports to each other that they're absolutely confident we'll never see the light of day. And, yeah. uh, you know, when it does, it's, it's really remarkable. And so when, and, and, you know, and so, and what I would say is, you know, after reading those things, you know, keep that in mind when you keep the, keep what you find in those Iraq war logs and vault seven leaks in mind when you read a New York times story uh, where uh, anonymous sources in the CIA are quoted, or when you watch MSNBC and James Clapper who lied in Congress under oath was there, uh, you know, is on there to give his take on things or John Brennan, who's also there to give his take on things frequently these days. I mean, you know, that, that, you know, and keep in mind what that says about them and what that says about the uh, the media that they're participating in there. Right. Uh, yeah, no, half of the people on MSNBC these days are, uh, you know, just CIA ghouls and former spies. And um, it's, but yeah, I mean, it's, people should keep that in mind. It's, they're, they're trying to make an example is what they're doing. They're trying to make an example of Julian Assange and uh, of anyone else who would attempt to do what he's done or, or any other, uh, anyone else uh, who would be a whistleblower. And, and that's what all this is about. So uh, it's something I'll be continuing to follow. I'm, I'm pessimistic about it, but um, um, we'll see what happens. Uh, yeah, there have been some protests on his behalf uh, going on in, in the UK, which is, which is uh, encouraging. Um, so at least, you know, people over there get it, uh, even if, if we don't, um, mm. but, uh, it's been kind of a freewheeling discussion, but maybe I can, uh, I can kind of, I am uh, loving it. Yeah. It's a good time. I'm glad we got yeah. to, uh, shitting on the CIA because that's, um, ultimately where I want to go with <laughs> this part of what I want to do with this podcast. Speaking to Molly Grover, field organizer extraordinaire for Bernie 2020 in New Hampshire, Wisconsin. Uh, what else is on your political resume, Molly? I just, you know, I'm just a, I'm a Bernie fan from way back. I, I, I don't know. I don't, I'm, I got into politics through Bernie in 2016, 2015. 
and then just, you know, couldn't leave it. I've been doing different, um, have had different jobs um, over the years, but it's, it's, uh, I think, I guess as far as my resume is concerned, I just feel like I want to just acknowledge the role of Bernie and bringing me into the political process. Maybe we can all say that 2016 was a, a big moment in our political development, uh, 2020 maybe even more so. Uh, I, I feel like maybe, especially after 2016, a lot of us kind of shifted one, uh, maybe multiple degrees to the left, uh, maybe even more so after, uh, after this 2020 primary campaign. The first thing you really got busy with after the primaries was this uh, Bernie Book Club. Uh, talk to us about that, Molly. Yeah, so I was very determined to not lose the movement feeling that I that I felt was the the biggest, the most important part of the 2020 race, but even of, also of the 2016 race. Um, you know. Bernie is such a unique candidate in his emphasis on the movement and his understanding deeply of uh, the power of a people's movement and the power of organizing. So it was like a knee-jerk almost reaction that, you know, not to lose touch with the two of you, John and David, who I met in New Hampshire, and not to lose touch with dozens of people that I'd, that I'd met in, in New Hampshire and in Maine and in Wisconsin, just wanting to keep the movement alive. And so the Bernie Book Club was the best I could think of during COVID, you know, sent out an email to try to see if people wanted to talk on a regular basis together and, and think about um, how we move forward together. And so we, number of people were interested in doing that. And we started to read Naomi Klein's book, Shock Doctrine, and uh, talked weekly about that, about the book, and then about current events as they unfolded. And Such a great book, uh, Shock Doctrine. It's, it's, I really have to credit uh, Naomi Klein for, maybe that was the first step towards my radicalization when I uh, when I read that book way back when it was in a sense at the time was just that it was kind of a critique of the Iraq War, but it's really so much more than that. It's it's history. It's uh, anti-capitalist critique, anti obviously neoliberal critique. Yeah, no, it's a the shock doctrine is a an awesome book. <laughs> uh, we got we got a bit distracted um, from the shock doctrine rightfully so, by George Floyd's murder. Um, mm -hmm. So we, we decided this is too critical. We all, um, we have one member, Trisha, who uh, was just phenomenal in leading us forward during that moment and coming up with an idea borrowed from our experiences in the campaign when we would do um, town hall events, small events for people um, on an issue where we'd invite them in, talk about the issue, have them tell a story, and then give them some ideas of how they can, you know, go from there. And um, 
And so she had this idea, let's do a virtual town hall in support of, of Black Lives Matter's demand to defund the police. And we, it was, you know, it just really evolved into a wonderful collaboration of all of us working together to put this town hall on and then getting a, four panelists who were just really knowledgeable about the subject and I thought spoke, you know, in very cool um, various ways to what it means to defund the police and why we need to do it. So that was a great feeling of we really are continuing the movement and we are, we are supporting a movement that's essentially one and the same with the Bernie movement, Black Lives Matter. I mean, maybe that would be, you know, people would argue no, but there's so much overlap that um, it can't be denied that we're, we're fighting for the same things. I, I think there's a lot of overlap and there is a, it's carrying on this kind of radical critique of, of society and uh, just everything that really needs to change now. Um, and it's just, and it's been such a unique moment with this pandemic where everyone has just had a lot of time to reflect and to uh, come up with new things to do, which I think is great. Uh, but uh, yeah, you also had this, uh, you, you had this candidate running in DC as part of the panel. Yeah, yeah. Um, so my co coworker from New Hampshire, Tricia, had worked with this wonderful guy, Ed Lazier, who is a currently running um, a campaign for the council at large seat in DC. And so we have been, several of us from the book club have been phone banking for him on a, on a weekly basis. And it, it's a small race. Like it's not a Senate race. It's not, you know, major, it's not swing state obviously, but um, it's an important one because, as you know, D.C. is one of the most segregated cities in the country. And if we could get Ed in that seat, he is a strong progressive. He is really strong on, on racial inequality and on police reform, or actually even further than that. You know, he really, he wanted to talk about defunding. And, right. um... And there's already a couple of progressive council members. So it would actually, it, the power of the council with a progressive agenda would be really heightened by his, you know, his, his addition to the council. And they could just do a lot of, of really needed things in DC if he got on the council. It's, uh, it's, it's, there's this movement now to talk about this term defund the police it, obviously strikes people as a very radical framing. It would be easy to be misunderstood, but uh, it, it seems to me very important right now to define for people what we mean by that. Um, how that, you know, essentially it's just, we need to be talking about mental health. We need to be talking about social services and social workers and, and really just how we can uh, approach issues of police brutality and it's just issues at the local level that can be solved without police without having someone show up there with, with a gun mm -hmm. and um and everything that that can entail um, 
but it's also just it's it's you know obviously you can have someone elected at the local level and then it's like who knows where they go from there right it's like bernie was you know mayor of of burlington vermont and it's just i mean that's one of the things that really has me hopeful in this moment is just all the great leftist people we are electing and then just the future for these people to um to carry on the movement into the future. Yeah. Um, and now your, uh, the Bernie Book Club is uh, returning to, uh, to your reading series. You're uh, reading Angela Davis. Yeah. Freedom is a constant struggle. Yeah. Um, what attracted you to Angela Davis? Um, it was a group decision about, you know, what we would read next, but I'm really excited to read, read her and, um, yeah, it's, you know, I think what ends up happening is we talk a little bit about the book, but mostly we just talk about whatever's happening in the world and in the country. So I'm sure that it will, um, just be a, a, a launch point, you know, for a, for a discussion about the things we're talking about right now too. It's, uh, I think, yeah, definitely an appropriate lens to see things through now. Uh, Davis is just such an underrated figure from my point of view, just a, just a great member of the left and, uh, and of the black left. Um, and it's, um, I don't know, without getting into it too much, because you guys haven't read it yet, but just a lot of great um, kind of anti-capitalist critique and the uh, really discussion of the... Uh, convergence of really the surveillance state and the and capitalist interests uh, you know people are, who are making money off of subjugation of Palestinians and uh, all the security measures there and then you know which which obviously brings to to a discussion of people making money off of private prisons here and um, the surveillance uh, industry and, and policing here. And now you're, uh, and you're also uh, doing a lot of phone banking. Uh, what, what candidates have you been phone banking for? Um, I've been really focused on Ed Lazier and did some for Andrew Valinsky in New Hampshire. And, but I've been, I've been taking a break from phone banking, I have to say. It's, I did so much of it for Bernie, um, you know, doing some of it, but uh, just it's just a personal thing. I'm, I'm burnt out on phone banking and I, I feel that connecting uh, with, with people around topics and talking, you know, more in depth about political um, orientations uh, with people and really building, you know, thinking about the movement, thinking about what's next for all of us as we move forward. I'm actually, you know, I'm thinking a lot about climate change and really trying to sort of, I know this is strange at this point when there's so much that's critical in these next weeks. I'm certainly focused on that too, but I am trying to take a long view, like a, like a, like a 10, 20 year view right now, because I think I'm going to be hopefully in, you know, in this work for, for a long time. And I want to find a way to do it that energizes me where I keep um, doing good work and having, having momentum for really vital kinds of change that we need. Yeah. 
phone banking can be very draining, um, but there's a lot to be done uh, now in terms of uh, organization, in terms of really all kinds of things. But um, yeah, it's let's talk about um, we're moving towards what could very likely be a disputed election. Unfortunately, um, we're looking at a mass disenfranchisement that could happen, uh, mail-in ballots being challenged, being thrown out. Um, tell us about um, what kind of organizing uh, is going on. What efforts are you involved with to, uh, to, to address this? Yeah, so I, I'm very energized and thrilled by the work that this group called Choose Democracy is doing. They are a, a group of a bunch of longtime activists, many of them from the Quaker tradition um, of, of nonviolent activism. Um, and they are training people on, you know, how to respond. Like they're, <laughs> they're, they're really, they've, they know, they've, they're very studied about how coups are stopped and they are currently offering Zoom trainings a couple of times a week uh, on what nonviolent resistance is, how you do it, and even more cool. How, I mean, that's really cool, but the, the thing that gets me most um, thrilled about what they're doing is that they are bringing people, they're bringing small groups of people together, encouraging them to get to get together and just make a strategy for how to work on their local officials or work on, um, you know, different sort of game out different potential ways that this could go in the next uh, couple of months. Um, and mostly they're focused on the time after November 3rd, you know, between in the interim between uh, the inauguration and so it's, you know, it's actually trusting regular people to think strategically, which is what gets <laughs> me just so excited and enthusiastic. I think we need to do that so much more on the left. I think there are so many big national groups that set strategy and you know, have very smart people doing it that are doing, you know, doing great strategy, but it's all top down as far as I've yeah. seen. Um, so people, volunteers, you know, just get handed an action and they do it. It's mobilization. It's not organizing people to think for themselves about what they want to see and, and what they know. I mean, a lot of people have more local knowledge um, that that's vital um, that, you know, then obviously national strategists have. So that's, that to me could mean a shift in terms of how people see themselves, people starting to see themselves more as capable of strategic thinking and decision-making and also how 
you know, how we do things on the left. Molly, I got to stop you there. Uh, are you telling me that the best ideas for post-election aren't filtering down from Schumer and Pelosi? Is that the claim? Because I think that's that, I think that's a bit far-fetched. I'm not just saying that. I'm saying they're not even filtering down from progressive, from Bernie, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think in any case, uh, whatever the future holds, I mean, if we were talking about a President Bernie Sanders right now, uh, I think that would uh, entail just mass organization to even have a chance of getting some of his, uh, making some of his policy proposals real, getting Medicare for all, getting any number of things that he had talked about. Um, it's going to be uh, and imperative if Biden is, is elected, seeing uh, just, you know, if we can accomplish something during his presidency, he's obviously not going to be inclined, and the Democratic Party power brokers are not going to be inclined to do anything incredibly progressive. And then uh, if we do have this disputed election, um, it's we're going to have to figure out how we address that and how we address a potential coup via the courts and uh, something like 2000, something like disenfranchising a mass number of people by a mail-in ballot. Uh, obviously, if Trump gets elected, uh, if he gets reelected, that's going to be the nightmare scenario. <laughs> and we're all going to, be, we're especially going to be, need to be doing a lot of organizing uh, in that case to um, fight uh, what's going to come. But uh, what is the strategy if, uh, in, in the case of, of this disputed election that we, that we could be looking at? Well, that's just the thing is that it, it's, you know, it, it's going to be different for, for all different areas because there's so much variation in how votes are, are counted and how, you know, just how the elections go in each state um, mm -hmm. that we need, like a, we need, not even just a state by state, but in some cases like district by district strategy. Um, yeah, so it's, it's crucial. And it's, you know, the election is just one of the shocks <laughs> that's coming. Like, you know, we have, there, there, we are in a time of, of major upheaval and it's not going to stop. You know, we have this climate, this climate crisis bearing down on us. It's here, as we know from this summer. And that is gonna, you know, that's just gonna continue. So I believe that we need a method of working on this, uh, we, that we need an approach to the, these, to the future, to what we, we know is coming that is truly grassroots and that is truly um, transformational in, in terms of getting away from our the capitalist model um, and in terms of getting away from the view of ourselves as the, as the best in the country, I mean, the best in the world. Mm -hmm. And... Um, Treating other countries as equals for once. Yep, yep and learning from other countries, learning from the global south, learning from indigenous movements, learning from feminist movements. You know, there's a lot of incredible action and organizing that has 
been happening for for decades that we uh, I think that that we can draw from there's a lot of wisdom there that we can draw from and I think we we need to right and just a lot of history uh, to draw from as well now it is looking like Trump is going to be intent on getting the Supreme Court nominee on the court uh, and we're going to be looking at a heavily uh, conservative Supreme Court. Uh, so that's, that's an avenue through which progress uh, is going to be blocked for some time, uh, where political process, uh, political progress in general is going to be more difficult. And I feel like we have to, there's a time where we have to look back to the early 20th century uh, workers' movements and progressive movements, I think. Um, you know, this, this is going to become, I think, an era where organizing is more important. Protesting, striking, developing worker power, and hopefully re-energizing unions, making unions into a force that can really, uh, can really move things forward again. Yeah, we definitely, all of what you just said, totally. And, um, and with the Supreme Court thing, I'm really excited, I haven't read it yet, but I'm excited to check out Kianga Yamata Taylor's um, article in the New Yorker about um, about the Supreme Court because she's advocating, you know, maybe we don't need it anymore. <laughs> maybe we really we need to really change. Um, maybe the courts are are too politicized. They're not serving their function that they were set up to um, to do. Right. So I think you know this kind of radical. This kind of it's not radical. This kind of like vision. It comes off as radical, saying like abolish the Supreme Court. Right, but it's not because it's about de democracy, true democracy. And if, if right. we do believe that that we that uh, you know people sh <laughs> people should be able to envision the future that they want and and fight for it, then that means you know maybe re envisioning our our government as it is right now because obviously it's not right. it's it's not working. At the very least, I think we could be talking about term limits on the Supreme Court. Um, the fact that uh, you know you have a justice who passes away now, uh, as opposed to two or three months later, and that that shapes the future of the country. Uh, maybe not quite the best way of doing things. Um, but uh, as far as radicalism, I like I think it's an Angela Davis quote. She says, "Radicalism means grabbing things by the root," and. Uh, Think that's what we need to do. We need to look at the root of our problems. Uh, we need to look at uh, political structures. We need to look at uh, societal structures, capitalist structures, and really critique those and see where we go from there. Amen. I mean, yeah, it is remarkable. Like uh, we're 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 running. You know, in terms of you know a government being like sort of the software of a civil society, we're running on a little more than two hundred uh, a year old. Uh, software that's been like patched numerous 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 right. times whereas a lot of other countries aren't aren't working from that kind of thing they have a modern constitution that you know is usually within the last hundred years and speaks more to the situations of today and so yeah there's like this question of whether we should keep patching this thing or if you know there are some serious structural reforms that go beyond the patches we're used to putting on it. Yeah, it's unfortunately there's this whole founding father worship uh, that makes it difficult to, I think, do the kind of reforms that we need, the kind of deeper structural reforms we need now. But 
Uh, Molly, do you have any uh, closing thoughts? Um, I don't. I don't really. I think I've said most of what I wanted to. So I'm. I but I really do appreciate being able to talk with you guys. It's 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 fun and it's it's good. Like it's good for me. <laughs> so thank you. It's, thank you for joining our uh, therapy session here today. Uh, <laughs> it's been great. Um, and uh, maybe we'll have you back on before long, Molly. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks, Molly. Always a pleasure. Yeah, likewise. Take care, you too. See you soon. Bye. Bye. Thank <laughs> you.